I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, CEO, and chief medical officer at Hospice Buffalo, Christopher Kerr, MD, PhD, and his new book is Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. Christopher Kerr is a hospice doctor. All of his patients die, yet he has cared for thousands who, in the face of death, speak of finding love, insight, and grace through pre-death dreams and visions. In the emotional transition between life and death, the dying often describe unseen processes that hold meaning. Lost long Long-lost relatives return to reassure, past wounds are healed, and forgiveness is finally achieved. The inner experiences of dying are often medically ignored, yet Dr. Kerr suggests that end-of-life experiences ought to be recognized as evidence of the life-affirming and inspiring resilience of the human spirit. Uh, Dr. Kerr earned his Ph.D. as well as as his M.D., uh, and his Ph.D. was in neurobiology, and his research has received international attention, and he's been featured in the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, and BBC. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kerr. Thank you for having me. All right, interesting book, and as a social worker, I have worked on uh, death and dying units, as they have called them, and uh, as a baby boomer, I've experienced a lot of uh, death experiences with friends and and colleagues and relatives, fortunately or unfortunately, but uh, this is a whole new realm that you're describing, and obviously you're basing this on scientific evidence. Uh, so let's talk about that. You, this, this, these visions you say that people have before they die, these pre-dreams that help them to die in peace. Cause after you just, uh, that hasn't always been my experience, I guess, dealing and working with dying patients. Oh, uh, well, it's certainly, um, what our research has borne out. So I, we're not talking about the moments before death. Um, we're talking about the days, weeks, and sometimes months before death. And uh, our, our research is published, and what we did is, in our first study, we, would, we uh, had questionnaires, and we would ask uh, daily until death what their experiences were. Um, to make it clear, a lot of these folks, and this is available online, were videotaped. So it's, it's not an interpretive issue on our part, one, you know, spitting this in a positive direction. You can actually hear um, them. Uh, and that actually became a really po- important part of our research to validate their experiences. Now, how, you, this is you, you've been validating these experiences, as you say, scientifically for all of these years. But does this happen to everyone? Can we generalize that this is something that occurs no matter what the circumstances of the death are? Because you describe different you describe a, a couple in their 80s, both dying at the same time, having been married for 57 years. I mean, it would seem to me those kinds of experiences of dying are different than a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old who's dying prematurely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you die essentially how you live. They're not incongruent to one another. Um, and the book, uh, I, th- I think, samples that by covering, you know, three pediatric patients and obviously couples and people who, had, who, had, who were cognitively compromised. So we really try to get a, uh, a cross-section. In terms of the, the incident rate, it's actually very high. Um, you know, when we, in, our, in our original study, again, it was 88% of these ex- uh, people were having these experiences. This isn't to imply that they're all comforting. Uh, 
the vast majority of them are, but roughly 17% um, are discomforting, again, congruent with how people have lived. So if somebody's been traumatized or they have something of regret, um, that's not denied at the end of life. But what seems to be so interesting is those are some of the most transformative experiences for people in that it, it, it brings them to a different point of recognition and often gets them to the point of asking for uh, reconciliation or forgiveness. Describe, can you describe in detail exactly how one of those, the, the pre-dreams or the visions, and you're sitting down with a patient, you're with your patient, and the patient is dying, and as you say, it's over a period of time. Go through the process very specifically in terms of what happens, what they say. In terms of the clinical interaction? Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think it's one of those things like many um, states that are subjective where sometimes it requires um, giving permission for somebody to, uh, to communicate or disclose, um, and it requires normalizing. You know, people haven't died previously. This is their, their first their, time. Their, their, <laughs> yeah, first time. And and so what often happens is is, is you say to somebody, you know, it, it's it's this is very normal for people to have these very intense virtual like um, experiences at the end of life, and that creates the opportunity for somebody to share or not share, um, depending. But normalizing becomes very important. There are people who just walk in the room and they'll just tell you, you know. Frankly, this is this is what's happening to me. Um, so it just it it depends. But I think it's really important to create um, that kind of openness uh, for that to be shared because you know, d- dying is is really not a uh, a medical equation at the end. It, it's it's a closing of a life. Uh, so it becomes very important in in our clinical interaction that we t- attempt to at least humanize it. Um, by at least providing people the opportunity to explain what their experience of dying is. The dying person doesn't care about their renal function anymore. You know, they, they don't care about their, their heart echo. Um, what they care about is what they're, what, what they're feeling um, and, and, and what they're trying to understand. I think that's important because the context is important, as you say, if you're in hospice. I mean, I've been with with uh, fam- actually friends and family members, hospice in home, but also uh, when a, a best friend of mine dying of ovarian cancer was in a hospice hospital. And as you say, it was very different because the permission was there. Talk about what you want to talk about. Bring your friends in to talk to you. She even had all her girlfriends in there, and we were drinking wine and talking, and which is obviously very different than if you're in a hospital setting and you're in the ICU and they are telling you what your renal function is or your heartbeat or whatever that happens to be. So context is important too, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and you know, uh, more than anything else, the, the dying want to have relevance and connectivity um, and that, in the end, distills down to our relationships. Uh, humor still matters. Our personal history still matters. Um, the rest of the stuff is really insignificant. What, what would you say in terms of health care here in the United States? Because it seems that most hospitals, and I, they're changing, but don't really adhere to that. You know, we're not, we don't have permission to talk to the, the patient, you know, the family comes in, one is supposed to be, you don't want to be irreverent, you have to be calm, you have to be quiet, uh, humor is not always part of the scenario. Is that changing? 
Well, there's actually, it's interesting you ask because there's, it was just released, I think, three, four weeks ago that for the first time, more people are dying at home. Um, historically, 75% of people have wanted to die outside of institutions in their home, and exactly that number haven't been able to do so. That seems to be uh, changing. Unfortunately, I think economics is driving a lot of this. Um, we're having to de-hospitalize as a matter of, of, of budgetary issues. Um, so care, out-of-hospital models of care are growing. Um, you know, again, wrong reason, but right outcome. Uh, and, you know, if, if we're to listen to patients, that's where they want to be. They want to be in the context of their life, in their home, with their family. Um, they're, not, they're not looking for a, a medical inter- intervention. Many of the patients, or many of the people I know, and this is not based on research, it's based just on my experience as anecdotal, um, some of them really try to hang on to, particularly in cases of cancer, for treatments that aren't going to work. And with doctors who listen to them and give them hope, maybe, I call it false hope. Let's talk about what is hope and what is false hope and what is really being able to be realistic and at the same time not pessimistic. I, I really don't exactly know how to explain it, but this kind of false hope that institutions it's actually, try to we, give it's you. Made more yeah. com- it's made more complicated than it is. Obviously, uh, the approach should be to hope for the best, but to prepare for the worst. So in other words, you shouldn't be denied your, your, your will to survive. But simultaneously, I think it's, it, it, everyone's harmed if you also don't realistically prepare for bad outcomes. Uh, medicine is notoriously injurious to patients who are dying. Uh, I can tell you, having done this my whole adult life, that, that we, when we take care of 1,000 patients a day here. And we have an inpatient unit, and when we get patients from hospitals, it's not uncommon for them to be aware of their death two days, a day sometimes before they get here. Now, there was nothing sudden or acute in their dying. It was just that somebody finally recognized the need to share that with the patient. Um, I mean, we're notoriously death-defying, and that's why a disproportionate number of people, up to a third of dying patients, visit ERs in the last uh, month of their life. Um, It's it's just, uh, there's this kind of assembly line of absurd care uh, that, that goes on. And you know, when, you, when they've looked at data, it's very interesting the number of people who don't disclose to their patients that they're dying. And they're also not Is that le- I'm going to interrupt you. Is that legal? Can yeah. you still do that? You, you don't tell them their diagnosis? Oh, comes every day. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, there's still a cadre of people who um, equate disclosing the truth about one's mortality as taking away hope. The idea, which is a paternalistic one, if you, if you take a, by not telling somebody, you're going to hide them from their own truth. And of course, the dying patient comes to that recognition themselves, and often traumatically. It's their life. It's their body. All of a sudden, they look in their arms half its size. They can't stand up anymore. Um, I don't see people who don't self-inform eventually that they're at their end of their life. Um, so we're not ultimately protecting anybody. And where it becomes really tragic is, um, in the worst case, is in the cases of young people who have children. 
and they're not given the opportunity to uh, address their end of life with their children, who it then becomes a more traumatic experience than it needs to be, as opposed to you know getting counseling and support and all of those things and having open and honest communication. And doing all those kinds of things that perhaps, as you say, if more people are dying at home, that won't happen. And, I mean, people know when, I mean, I maintain, we all know our own bodies. And as you say, when we're deteriorating, we're well aware of it. But when you, if, if you're not able to talk about it openly with your partner, your kids, it just creates this huge wall. And uh, you really do die alone in that case. Because, oh, you're taking an, yeah. an already uh, tragic event and traumatizing it. So they say in the book, it's not uncommon for us to get people coming from hospital where they actually know the price of coffee. They know how much it, it, it costs to park, but they actually don't know how their loved one is going to die, when they're going to die, the real things that matter, which is really interesting in an era, era where we demand information and autonomy and judgment and all of those things. You said earlier that we die the way we lived, and I think that's very true. So given that, and I'm going to just share a couple of my experiences with friends, particularly one of my close friends, who had who did not want to die, very much an engaged person and did everything she could. Oh, she had, uh, she had, uh, she had ovarian cancer too. Um, but was really angry at the end because she didn't want to die. And it wasn't like going peacefully into the night kind of thing. It was like, why me? Up until the end. This is not what I bargained for. This is not what I bargained for, I guess is the word. But I see that a lot. People I don't. Who, I just. Don't. I'm sorry. I don't. Well, no. I, I want you to talk about that because uh, you know maybe it's just my friends. Uh, the, <laughs> maybe it's just people that I associate well, it, with. It, 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 it may be in part the age group. Um, okay. So I, I certainly see that more disproportionately in people who have unfinished lives. By that I mean people who still have dependent children, for example. Um, it's very hard. It's, you, you obviously die completely different in your ninth decade of life as opposed to your third decade of life. A completed life, one where people who you have felt responsibility to are now independent and thriving, and, the people, and most of your peer group has died. It's a very, and you're tired. Um, you know, you've been allowed to age, you know, take afternoon naps, don't feel like doing the stairs anymore. You know, death actually for many people comes as a welcomed embrace, not something to be feared. That's obviously not true. So it depends on the age group you're, you're, you're talking about very, very much. Yeah, I guess I'm talking about probably middle-aged people in my ex- not old people. I, you know, I have a very old mother who falls into the category you're talking about. All her friends are dead. She's lived a long life. Yes, and that's she's ready to go, I think. But the group I'm talking 40s, 50s, 60s, that's the age group that that, that I'm yeah. Uh, well, I think it's 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 um it's unfortunate that you're exp- your experience, but it's, I, I think most people certainly uh, in, the, in, the, in the period of illness, um, right up until maybe the last weeks or days, uh, are obviously fearful, resistant, angry, often in denial. But there does become a point when people tend to re-equilibrate and they come to some sort of peace and recognition. And actually what tends to happen is 
their concerns less go towards self but towards others. So we see an enormous amount of selflessness towards the end of life. Um, so they're not concerned uh, about themselves, but they're concerned about somebody they love and are leaving. Um, so there's remarkable gestures that are more outward going than inward focused. So a lot of people do um, reach that point where they're at a more peaceable level. Dr. Kerr, I have one question. What are the, and more than one question, but this question is what responsibility do physicians have to facilitate or do they have a responsibility to facilitate this kind of, I, I don't want to, dying with dignity or dying as you're describing it, being able to open up and be honest with what's happening with them and dying in peace? It's the ultimate responsibility. I think, you know, when, when you take the oath to be a physician, it, it, it's to treat when possible and to comfort always. And what has kind of happened in, in, in our modern medical culture is we've become so treatment-focused, I think we forgot the other side of the sword, which is that um, we have an obligation to be uh, comforters as well. I mean, the worst things we say in medicine is there's, there's nothing we can do for you, which means there's nothing more we can do to you often um, in terms of recovery. But people don't matter less because they're no longer considered curable. And we have an obligation um, to be present. The, the worst thing we can do is, is, is be guilty of abandonment uh, of the patient just because they can't, can't be be cured. I think that's really well said. It would seem to me that that has a lot to do also uh, with training young doctors in, in medical school or young people who are going to become doctors, because that hasn't necessarily been the traditional kinds of training that they've had. It's like, we need to save your life, but it's, uh, you're redefining it. We need to be there for you. Not necessarily that we're going to give you, prolong your life, but we are going to be there for you to comfort you, as you say. Um, doesn't that have to begin in medical training? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the patient-doctor relation shouldn't be conditioned on outcome, right? I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and, yeah, it, it absolutely does. And, you know, that's where our other disciplines become so important, Um you know, people who are kind of better protected in their roles um, to get to know patients as people, social workers, pastoral care, nurses who are actually at the bedside, um, very much so. So in other words, a team approach is always a, is good. I, isn't that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, people yeah. want to be treated in totality, um, not just by parts. Um, how do you oh, deal yeah. with how do you deal with families? Because you know families are obviously part of the equation, uh, who are adamant about we can't tell the patient the truth because they'll you know it's we don't want it we we want it we don't want to tell them the truth so you, you can't so you can't do that um, so you're dealing with the not necessarily that the patient would welcome being able to know that or have you. Uh, Again, again that, 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 that really doesn't occur very often. The, the, the only times we typically really hear that adamantly is with um, somebody who's demented, um, where they can't form new memories, for example, so they can't knowledge accumulate, and, and the family wants them not to be protected and not informed. Um, 
But what's, what's fascinating, even in that population, they seem to have some understanding as well. But generally, um, you know, I, I, I think that it becomes so self-evident that somebody's dying that uh, we don't see families um, really insisting on, on not telling them. You know, and, and honestly, if they're properly included, if treating the patient also means consideration of their family, it's all done together. Can you give us, since we only have a couple minutes left, uh, the book is fascinating, by the way, and I want to um, tell listeners the title of the book again, Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End, Christopher Kerr, MD, PhD. You can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, I'm assuming, but what website or websites can we go to to find out more about your book and about your work? Yeah, I would encourage people to go to the website, not in the name of self-promotion, but uh, <laughs> on the website is, is uh, an, a link to a number of patient and family videos. And um, I'm just the messenger on this. It's far better to actually see them and hear from them. Uh, and that's available at my website. It's Dr. 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 Uh, Christopher Kerr, K-E-R-R, dot com. Great. Great having you on this show today fascinating thank conversation you. and uh, yeah and I recommend your book to everyone thank you okay bye now I'm Catherine Zox your social worker with a microphone and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox show 